Well, the World Cup's just been held in Qatar, but alongside the fervour from the footy fanatics, several political controversies, and I'm sure you know what they were. One of them, primarily, uh, human rights of locals, especially the LGBTQI community. FIFA threatened the penalties against seven European teams if they dared uh, to wear the rainbow armband with the words One Love emblazoned on them in solidarity with any protests. The Socceroos, of course, released their own video showing their support for the community ahead of uh, flying out to play in the Middle Eastern country that has long, of course, criminalised homosexuality. Now, has the sport we love to watch become another battleground in the culture wars? Well, none of this is new. A look back at history shows players and athletes have often used their sporting platform to spotlight injustice and chosen ceremonial moments to take a stand. So how far should our sporting teams and athletes use their political or social beliefs, for that matter, in any sporting event? Good question. Likewise, should world leaders and politicians avoid using sport as a platform as well? How political has sport become? especially as players and athletes are competing under their national flag and their anthem. Well, today on Talking Point, is there a place for politics in sport? Can it be kept off the field at all? Dr. Daryl Adair is an Associate Professor of Sport Management and teaches at the University of Technology in Sydney, but also Editorial Board of the academic journal Sporting Traditions, Sport in Society, Performance Enhancement and Health, the Journal of Sport History, and the Journal of Sport and Development. So ready for a big chat, our guest today is Daryl Adair. G'day, Daryl. G'day, Tim. Great to talk to you. Gee, uh, it's a very big question, but we'll start with it. Is it possible to keep uh, politics out of sport? Well, in a general sense, it's simply not. Um, uh, Sport is set up with, uh, for example, certain uh, eligibility requirements. So, you know, there's uh, weight categories in boxing, but there's no height category in basketball. So that's a decision that has been made by the rule makers. Uh, equipment is restricted uh, in some sports. Um, so, for instance, we once had fast skin suits in swimming. They no longer exist um, because it was uh, considered that the sport itself had changed too much on the basis of, of the equipment. Uh, and there's also, of course, sport is set up, generally speaking, into uh, male and female categories under the assumption that men and women are sufficiently different to uh, to warrant that. And within that uh, context, you have women's sport as a protected category. And uh, what that has done is, uh, in recent times, is to complicate the participation of, um, of, of intersex uh, athletes who have yeah. grown up female. Um, and in addition, of course, uh, transgender athletes, particularly those that transition uh, from male to female. So all of this is political when we're just looking at the eligibility requirements to take part. That's the baseline. Yeah, I'm pleased you mentioned that because I've been saying this to anyone who was prepared to listen. I grew up, I grew up playing rugby league, and back then they were weight categories. If memory serves, it was under five stone seven, under six stone 12 in the old money. And then I had uh, one of my sons play rugby league against these very big, uh, mostly Polynesian boys. And I thought to myself, well, why wouldn't you think about bringing back a weight requirement rather than an age requirement? But I, I don't think it's been done to any extent yet, has it? Uh, more, so, more so in rugby union yes. um, at junior levels. Uh, there has been, as you say, a sensible recognition that um, age is not necessarily a, a reflection 
of uh, you know one's uh, physical maturity. Mm. And so weight categories for young people, I think, is is very sensible, particularly when you're making, um, dare I say, it, political decisions uh, about safety and prevention of injury. Mm. Now, uh, to use a big subject, this isn't it. There have been protests about race, gender, money, nationality and sport decade after decade after decade. Whenever sports people show their support for a cause, it's followed that world leaders criticise their moves. Even recently, uh, we've been punctuated with many controversies where athletes took a stand. And you listen to Talkback Radio and everyone said, well, you know, it just should be sport. Just play the game and, and keep your views away from uh, the rest of us. Is that even possible? I doubt it, um, uh, particularly these days, given that um, uh, sport organisations have evolved um, with a sense of mission, and that is, okay, they produce sport, they provide opportunities for people, but they also have values that they stand for. And core to uh, just about every um, popular sport today is the notion of inclusion, um, and uh, respect for all. And that involves things like, you know, anti-racism, anti-bigotry, anti-sectarianism, anti-homophobia, uh, and so on. And if a sport actually stands for these, when there are things that happen in broader society which shock everybody, uh, such as the uh, George Floyd murder, then um, it, it's kind of not a surprise that uh, sports and athletes who, uh, after all, um, ha- are public figures, um, take it upon themselves to uh, actually take a stand or, in fact, in this ta- case, uh, take a knee. Um, they're not the only ones who do it. Lots of, uh, if you like, celebrities mm. uh, use their um their public uh, status to advocate all sorts of things. But when it comes to athletes, it's often thought that um, these kinds of things just unduly detract from what most people want is just turn the telly on, play the game, see the heroes, um, boo the opposition and just turn the game off. Yeah, look, I'm sure it happened before the 1936 games, but, I mean, that one, I mean, Hitler used that, didn't he, uh, to put forward all of those hideous ideas of his. And I think he spent an awful lot of money, built a very big stadium and wanted this to be uh, the showcase for Germany. And that's, you know, 1936. Yeah, so so th- this isn't new. And uh, sometimes we, uh, depending on what side of politics you're on, you, you applaud the way in which um, uh, values um, are um, demonstrated Mm. at uh, mega events. And sometimes you kind of cringe because um, the demonstrations seem either uh, against uh, the the values that you hold. Mm. Uh, So, for example, if you're in the United States or Australia looking on in 1936, what Hitler was doing um, and he was given permission, really, by the IOC to stage this event in any way he wanted. Um, you know, there was a, a certainly an uncomfortable witness on the part of the West to what was going on. But, you know, I, I come back almost always to um, what I think was the most important way in which sport has impacted international relations 
and the fate of a people, which is apartheid South Africa. Oh, yes. Many of your listeners are are too young to appreciate what went on then, but certainly in the 1960s and 70s, um, sport was a very important um, vehicle for standing up to the apartheid regime. And it took a lot of pressure, uh, but eventually even a very conservative organisation like the IOC came in ward and said, look, South Africa's not welcome unless it changes its apartheid regime. And uh, suddenly you had uh, black and coloured people in South Africa who felt that the world was finally standing up for them Mm. and using sport um, as, as a stepping stone to do that. Yeah, I am old enough uh, to remember just, and uh, it should be mentioned too, and they are, I suppose, back to it to an extent. But uh, at that time, I mean, South Africa were giants and champions in particularly rugby and cricket. That's right. And um, New Zealand, uh, uh, which at the time had a a conservative political leadership, was particularly affronted when uh, the rest of the world decided that uh, uh, that they wouldn't play rugby against South Africa. Mm. And, in fact, uh, New Zealand was pretty much the only major country that played against South Africa during that apartheid uh, era, and that brought out some of the biggest protests oh, yes. you've ever seen in, in New Zealand. Uh, it was as big as the um, the anti-war demonstrations uh, against Vietnam. Yes, and that was a case, absolutely, wasn't it, of politics and uh, doing the right thing, no matter the cost to the sport, yes? Yeah. Uh, look, uh, sport, um, sport only works when the, the, the society within which it exists are in alignment. And I think what we saw in that case was a misalignment between uh, what New Zealanders and also what the rest of the world felt mm. about racism in South Africa. And, in fact, uh, uh, that the New Zealanders were prepared to not only snub the rest of the world, but, in fact, to do nothing and thus give you know, tacit support uh, to a regime in which black and coloured people were second and third class. Yes, indeed. And when you were talking about cricket, and we do see this deep sense of nationalism, look, when Pakistan play India, lesser extent, when the Aussies are up against the Kiwis or England, we've got the Barmy Army and all of that going on. And uh, is there any harm in any of that? Well, there's no harm in the Barmy Army. I think that's terrific. They're great, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they have a great spirit, tremendous humour. Uh, they're very charitable. Uh, but they're good barrackers as well, so they can sledge with the best of them. But <laughs> it's it's not um, it's not done in a humiliating way. Uh, they are there to enjoy cricket and add to the uh, cultural environment. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Pakistan and India because it, it's it's hard to think. Uh, I know there are other examples around the world mm. uh, of, of countries who might be brought together to play. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, you know, Israeli and Palestinian athletes, North and South Korean athletes and so on. Um, You can imagine all the the geopolitical tensions there. But in terms of one that we're most familiar with, which is 
you know, India and Pakistan. It was just wonderful to see those two countries play again recently. It was. Uh, yeah. The MCG and the most extraordinary game. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I spoke to uh, some Pakistani and Indian students I have, and um, they were they were so joyous that this was able to take place. And they understood that behind all this, there are still significant geopolitical tensions. Hmm. But from just the grassroots fan perspective, they just really wanted to watch the game. And this is the kind of uh, the duality about politics that's so uh, intriguing that on the one sense, yes, you do have people who just want to enjoy the sport. And then, of course, at the other level, you have politics which um, can add to the game, okay? So, yeah. in other words, you can have uh, some, some uh, if you like, tribal um, or nationalistic um, yeah. uh, tensions, which, which can be healthy, like, for example, uh, the way in which Australia and England have fought out cricket matches. But then when it goes further and it becomes uh, a, a kind of a, a geopolitical uh, point-scoring exercise, and cricket itself can't escape that, then I think that's when people start to uh, kind of wish for a simpler time. But that's more of a reflection of the, the international politics and the game itself. Yes, it is. And look, when you think about international politics and the game itself, I mean, the World Cup, the Olympic Games, awarded to countries, and that's always filled with political lobbying. And many say, and it's probably true, a lot of money changes hands uh, to get the nod, if you like. Well, I think that has been well exposed now yeah. in terms of the, uh, the, the Qatar uh, interest in mm. securing the World Cup. Um, and, and uh, you know, one of the ways in which it's described now by uh, uh, commentators is something called sports washing. Um, so Middle Eastern countries in particular with lots of money like Qatar, uh, like uh, Saudi Arabia, have purchased um, European uh, soccer clubs, for example. Mm. And in a sense, they can afford to do so. But what they also do is they ingratiate themselves uh, deeply into Western culture. And when you look at the uh, what used to be the Doha Sports City, which is now the Aspire Sports City in Doha, it's one of the great sports precincts in the world. And now that it's had these um, uh, new additions with infrastructure and new stadiums, I mean, you, you have uh, teams like Manchester United go and train there and Alex Ferguson at the time said these are just incredible facilities. Yeah. And so, you know, what you have is is a is a, a a country that's made a strategic decision to invest in sport for um, an economy that is finite in terms of fossil fuels mm. and sees itself as embedding itself into sport as a way of uh, being part of the uh, the global landscape. Yeah, look, you don't, do you, like to pick on one sport in particular, but we've had this horrible incident recently in the A-League where the Melbourne City goalkeeper uh, Tom Glover had a bucket thrown at his head and that fella apparently had been banned from games before and he's now been banned from, uh, for life and will be facing charges. Now, again, I'm not picking on that sport in particular. However, uh, 
I'm old enough to remember when all of those clubs had an ethnic name and an ethnic background. There was Panhellenic yeah. and Harkoa and uh, Melita Eagles, and that was taken away, and it was just made an A-League, and they were called what they're called now, Melbourne City, Sydney City, whatever. But that was just uh, a really, to me, those old days came back, and I just sat there and shuddered watching it. Yeah, except uh, other than the actual uh, behaviours, this was not like the old days at all in the sense that uh, this behaviour was unrelated to any sort of um, uh, football team that had an ethnic lineage. This was was part of new football. This was part of, um, you know, one of the the franchises that the A-League's been very um, keen to promote. Mm. And... uh, I'm glad you raised um, the way in which uh, we'll call it old soccer and new football Mm. has has transformed because when the A-League was uh, conceived, I think it was in 2006 or 7, a lot of the the old National Soccer League uh, teams applied to join, but they weren't um, given given the ticket. So there were all these... um, uh, uh, kind of geographic franchises, so um, city-based, which is more consistent, I think, with the way in which Australian sport uh, is organised. Um, however, what um, uh, Football Federation Australia went and did subsequently was uh, highly political and in a multicultural society, you could say, is offensive, and that is they uh, brought in edicts whereby uh, they would ban um, ethnic names or ethnic lineage from uh, the clubs uh, below the A-League. Yeah. Um, and uh, only recently have they rescinded that particular view. But, w- uh, but what, what that indicates is an ongoing clash, really, between those who grew up with old soccer and those who are part of new mm. football. And there's many people in between. And uh, there's a lot of uh, discomfort, shall we say, about the way in which the game is run today in Australia yes. and yeah. the lack of opportunity for promotion and relegation, uh, which most of the rest of the world has in football and which many of the former national soccer uh, clubs would like to avail themselves of. Mm. Yes, I'm speaking with Dr. Daryl Adair about politics in sport. You know, there's a few that uh, go back a long time in history that uh, even I can't remember, and uh, they go back to the early 1900s, and they were protests that were worth having. I think I remember one of them. Was it Gertrude Edurl, who became the first woman to swim the English Channel? This is in 1926. It took her 14 hours, 34 minutes, and a change of coaches. Now, it was the first time a female athlete had emerged to challenge stereotypes. And, Doctor, you know, they're still doing it today, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Look, it wasn't so long ago that uh, women weren't allowed to uh, run the marathon. Uh, And um, the the famous example, and I've forgotten the, the lady's name, um, oh, Catherine Schweitzer, mm. that's her name. Um, she entered the Boston Marathon, which was only for men in the 1980s, and uh, she was able to complete it, um, although they tried to kick her out once they realised the woman's running. Uh, she completed it and then started to change uh, perceptions that 
well, actually, maybe we should let women run and women now have their own race. But there's been a, an enormous um, struggle for women. And, and when you look at the way sport is today, um, I like to give my uh, students a history lesson because many of them don't realise how bad things have been oh, yes. uh, for women in sport over the decades. Uh, and what we're seeing now with new opportunities for uh, women in sports that used to be just the preserve of men is uh, something I didn't anticipate happening so quickly. No. And I love watching uh, NRLW in particular. I'm an old leaguey from way back and AFLW. Yep. And we've just come a long way in what seems to me to be a relatively short period of time. Well, well that's right. Um, it's... Uh, I, I, I think that uh, a lot of credit needs to go to uh, women's soccer internationally, as I think that they put a lot of effort into that, and also women's cricket. Uh, and I think uh, also once Australia had a women's rugby seven team and they won a gold medal at Rio in 2016, suddenly one year later, the AFL set up AFLW, the NRL follows, and then you've got uh, you know, rugby union following there became a cascade because uh, I think they realised quite quickly, not only was it the right thing to do, uh, but they needed to do it because otherwise their sport would be just looked at as really blokey. And the other thing is they wanted to expand their participation base and therefore um, align that with uh, trying to improve the number or proportion of female spectators. Look, I'm sure most of our listeners would remember uh, Billie Jean King. What an extraordinary woman she was for her sport. In 1973, so the best part of 50 years ago, and you'd know this, she organised the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, and threatened a boycott of the Open if the prize money for winning the finals was not the same for men and women. And it sounds like not much now, 25 grand. And then, of course, the Battle of the Sexes game she played against Bobby Riggs. Yeah, that's... Uh... What a fantastic um, story yeah. that is. It, I think it's still the most watched uh, tennis match on American TV historically. Uh, I mean, everybody tuned in uh, and a lot of people just couldn't believe that, um, you know, the best female player or one of the best in the world could beat Bobby Riggs, who in his prime was uh, was a very good male tennis oh, player. Yeah, but, yeah. And he was, uh, I think, from memory, late 50s, early 60s, and when you think about it, it's probably no surprise he lost. Um, and he was quite the misogynist uh, and he was very outspoken and patronising towards female tennis players. But he was gracious in defeat. You've got to give him that. He was, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, Billie Jean King, I, I still think she's the most important female tennis player in history uh, for the reasons you've outlined. And would that, if that's the case, and I agree with you, what about... Muhammad Ali, formerly Cassius Clay, was that perhaps the most important protest? He said, look, I'm not going over there to kill those people and uh, became a conscientious objector. Well, when you have the profile that, uh, uh, that Muhammad Ali had and you make that decision um, and you pay for that decision, oh, yes. okay, mm. um, and it impacts on your capacity to be you know, the greatest boxer in the world, that is going to be big news and create discussion. Uh, look, uh, whatever Ali did was news. 
and um, uh, I, uh, I've followed uh, the Ali story with, with interest as many people have over the years. He wasn't a perfect man by any means, no. but he, he was uh, um, an extraordinary individual at a time when uh, African-Americans were really second-class citizens uh, in their own country. Mm. And uh, the, the fact that he had this bravado and he also had uh, a dialogue with the media that was exceptional. He was so confident, mm. he was hockey, but he was also poetic. Everybody wanted to listen to Muhammad Ali. Yes, and, and the thing about Ali is uh, he over... Oh, look, I, I just think... I mean, you could you'd say this about plenty, uh, even our own Bradman, but uh, arguably, to me, in my mind, uh, the greatest sporting figure of all time, Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I'd, I'd be struggling to think of uh, anyone that would overshadow him in terms of the fullness of his role, both on and off the field. I mean, you, you've got some extraordinary athletes uh, like, you know, Michael Jordan, mm. uh, you know, Tiger Woods, Lionel Messi, but none of them really um, have any of that sort of um, political engagement or even community engagement in many respects. Mm. Uh, I mean, Michael Jordan, uh, what a genius basketballer. Yeah. But... You know, unlike, say, Jackie Robinson, who was the first African-American in Major League Baseball, Jackie Robinson was very active in terms of the civil rights movement. I mean, Michael Jordan, I mean, I don't know what you could say that he's done outside basketball other than, um, you know, uh, some commercial ventures. Same with Tiger Woods when he was interviewed about uh, Nike and sweatshops in his prime. He said, look, I don't know anything about that. I just hit a golf ball. Now, that's a choice you make. Um, if if he, he could have said, no, it's not true, or Nike's improving, instead mm. he said, basically, I'm not interested. Yeah, he did. Just an extraordinary man. Look, and you would, obviously, you've seen these as, as I have, apart from being just an incredible boxer. I've watched many interviews he's done with Michael Parkinson, Dick Cavett, talk show hosts, over the years. What a mind. What an extraordinary mind and a very erudite man. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, I, I think Mark, uh, Michael Parkinson described him as the cleverest interviewee he'd ever had. And uh, if, if your listeners go to YouTube and look for that, uh, uh, that particular, you, you can find it. You can, yeah. You, you'll be very impressed with the way in which he uses humour. He talks about his childhood, his family, his mm. mother. But then he makes us realise things which are common sense, but as white people we never noticed. So, for instance, he made the point, uh, why is Christmas white? Um, why are the angels white? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically, he's grown up in an environment where uh, a lot of the most important things that are valued in American society, um, uh, the colour white or um, white people being uh, celebrated in that sort of environment, 
are very different. So blacks don't seem to have a role, is the mm. point he's made. Indeed. And if you look at the birth of Christ, well, I don't think, you know, Jesus Christ in Bethlehem was, uh, you know, a, a blue-eyed blonde or something with fair <laughs> skin. Yes. Yes, well, you know, like there's a standing joke in, in our family, uh, Christmas movies, which is off subject a bit, but uh, I'm forever saying to my family, well, you don't watch Die Hard or Love Actually, you watch The King of Kings, which of course was Jeffrey Hunter, a very tall, blue-eyed, blonde person playing Jesus Christ, which is, yeah. as you and I both know, incredibly incongruous for the time. That's right, and and if your listeners go to the uh, the interview with Ali, he gives... Um, you know, a dozen examples which are just jaw-dropping mm. make us realise how white we've made our society to shoot to, to suit ourselves largely. And while it wasn't done by design to, um, uh, if you like, um, distance or um, disparage uh, people of colour, mm. we need ways of actually bringing diversity into traditional rituals in which, um, you know, things like Father Christmas with his white hair and his white skin mm. are the only norm. I mean, how do you, how can you reinvent something like Christmas? How can you reinvent sport, mm. for example, mm. to actually be more inclusive? Because we do live in a diverse society. Oh, absolutely, we do. And look, I'm sure our listeners are uh, listening to the radio and thinking, well, what about some of the other ones? Well, this one's very in, much in my memory in 1968, and it involves, of course, Peter Norman, now one of our athletes when in Mexico City in 68, Tommy Smith and John Carlos with the very famous or infamous, if you like, the black gloved black power salute as the star bangled banner was being played. Now, in 1968, that was a hell of a thing. Oh, it was, uh, and and they uh, they uh, basically were treated very badly um, and uh, essentially sent back uh, to the United States. Mm. Um, it was a very noble thing that Norman did to to support them, mm. and I think it's a great example of of why racism isn't black and white, um, and and that it, it it's something that can affect everybody in the sense that you can be an advocate. If you see racism or bigotry or, or homophobia or whatever it is, if anyone is being humiliated, if anyone's being um, maltreated in society, then you don't have to be black to actually stand up against racism against a black. Mm. You just have to be an advocate. And Peter Norman was well ahead of his time in uh, standing up for uh, what he did. And he knew both of these guys. They weren't new to him, and they were just great friends. Oh, yes. And look, our listeners are probably thinking, well, you know, some of this is new and, and some of it isn't. Well, more recently, of course, the Olympic Games, uh, the boycott by the Biden administration against the Beijing Winter Olympics uh, because of their human rights abuses. But that goes back to 1960. That happened then uh, when most Western countries were objecting to the way mainland China, had, well, dealt with anything. And I think they uh, the people of Taiwan uh, deposed as the rightful rules of mainland China. So that thing's been going on for what is this now? Uh, 60-odd years, six, over 60 years. Yes, that's right. And, uh, of course, Taiwan isn't at the Olympics. It's uh, no. Chinese Taipei. Mm -hmm. And the IOC has always deferred to uh, to China in that respect. Um, 
And mind you, the United Nations still doesn't call it Taiwan. It's still Chinese Taipei. And so sport is um, is immersed, embedded, and uh, in many ways reliant on uh, its naming conventions in respect of uh, the way in which the world organises yeah. itself. Yes, um, I, I think we firmly established that politics and sport definitely do mix, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Too much, <laughs> and, they, and they have but over. They're inevitable. Yeah, they are. They are. And I remember, and this one I do remember quite vividly was uh, the boycott of Moscow in 1980 for the obvious reason that they'd just invaded mm. Afghanistan. And from memory, I think uh, Australian athletes were given the option, weren't they, to go or not go? That's right. So <clears throat> um, the the Australian government took a position uh, that uh, it would not recognise the the games. And so it allied itself with the United States, but it did not prevent uh, Australian athletes um, uh, going, and uh, and thus you know they they were able to uh, participate, but not with the same level of support, and certainly not with the same public support that you would uh, you would see uh, normally. But the United States, their athletes uh, didn't compete at all. So uh, the US Olympic Committee uh, pulled out their athletes, um, which was different to uh, yes. the Australian situation. Yes. Now, let's. Uh, it's all been very negative so far, but what about the positivity of uh, the extraordinary Nelson Mandela in South Africa, uh, generosity of spirit for sure and vision, really, uh, to bring the, uh, the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup, to South Africa in 1995, and uh, it was an incredibly unifying event. Yeah, what a great moment. Tremendous, uh, when, tremendous. When he uh, held the cup with... Uh, uh, with Francois Pinar, I think his name that's was. That's him, yeah, that's him. Um, and, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela, when you reflect on the fact that he was imprisoned for some 27 years, ascended to uh, the, the the premiership of, of South Africa, and here he was at the World Cup wearing a Springbok jersey. Yeah. <laughs> and some of your listeners may know that the Springbok uh, is uh, the emblem of the Africana. It is. And Africana uh, were basically the architects of, of apartheid. So this was a... a, a re- Remember we said before, it's about trying to change tradition uh, to adapt it to a more diverse and inclusive world? Well, there's an example. Here you have Nelson Mandela, a black man, heading a country wearing a Springbok jersey. Yeah, it was just an extraordinary thing to see, wasn't it? And uh, we can't uh, leave this discussion without mentioning, and you almost don't want to, the absolute horror of 72, the Olympics in Munich, when the eight Palestinian terrorists invaded the Olympic village and killed two members of the Israeli team in just what was just horrible. Yeah, so um, I always uh, encourage my students to uh, watch the documentary called Black September, yes. which um, uh, your listeners will be able to find on, um, on various sources. And that's uh, it's a two-hour documentary that takes you through that. It's harrowing. But it's really important. And unfortunately, the, the West German government at the time was trying to uh, provide, if you like, a, a low-security uh, Olympics uh, after having... Um, presided over such a uh, a cruel World War II, 
in 72, so we've got 30 years later, Germany wanted to put on a friendly face, but it wasn't prepared for um, uh, Palestinian terrorists mm. coming in and doing what they did. And um, look, it, it's something you just never want to see. And it, uh, it's a horrific memory for oh, anybody yeah. who loves sport and for uh, Jewish people in particular. Just absolutely hideous. Now, just one thing. I mean, does this all go back really to, you know, a few thousand years uh, to the Colosseum, you know, the entertainment of the masses? I mean, that was hardly mm-hmm. sport, but I suppose it was in those days considered sport. Uh well, I don't know if they would call it a sport. It was certainly <laughs> entertainment, but, uh, but the ancient Olympics, I think, is is where it, where you it, go. it uh, yeah. goes back. And <clears throat> the thing is, is, there's a lot of myths about the ancient Olympics. So they, they weren't amateur. You could make a lot of money as an Olympian. Uh, you could make, you could set yourself up for life, in fact. Mm. They had professional coaches and, um, you know, there was, uh, it was tremendously competitive uh, and uh, you know you could uh, you could compete in a number of events that just don't exist today, but that were really brutal. Mm. Uh, and so the the idea that the 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 Olympics were uh, this kind of idealistic uh, uh, exhibition, and that uh, in the modern world we just uh, adapted uh, and modernized what they uh, what mm. they did is is quite the myth, really. Uh, that the modern Olympics are ex- very, very different to the ancient games, uh, which is a political decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yes, that's right. I'm speaking with Dr. Daryl Adair and we're talking uh, politics and sport. So, yeah, not just there to entertain but to protest, and we prove that's been the case over many, many years. But do you think it's true, because I do, that people tend to line up along their political beliefs with all of this, taking the knee being one of them, uh, the trouble Pat Cummins got into over the, the uh, of t- taking the knee and, and really expressing his views quite publicly. We had the netball uh, situation with uh, Gina Reinhardt, all of these recently in Australia, and people don't tend to go, oh, well, they should just get out on that field and play and leave their beliefs to themselves. And others say, well, they're perfectly entitled to, as young men and women of Australia, have an opinion. So where do we sit with all of that? Yeah, look, I think the the most important thing is that the the sport, um, the players and the sponsors uh, align themselves around agreed core values. There's no point, as we saw with Nepal, having a misalignment where uh, a sponsor had, um, uh, how do I put this, a, a, a seemingly different position than some of the players did um, in respect of uh, uh, Indigenous uh, history um, and the importance of inclusion. Uh, and so... I think it's a, it's really a question of the sports deciding uh, what they stand for and the athletes being key contributors to that discussion but also bringing the sponsors along mm. uh, because it's it, you can't imagine a sport today not standing for anything. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you had, I don't know, let's imagine Australian baseball became really popular overnight. Yeah. And you interviewed them and said, okay, so you're a popular sport now. So what, what sort of values do you espouse? And I said, oh, we don't have any. Yeah. Uh, we, just, we just play baseball. 
And you say, well, what do you do in the community? Oh, well, um, oh, we bring some some people in from different backgrounds. Uh, do you have anything for girls and as well as boys? Oh, yeah, we bring in girls and boys. Oh, so you do stand for things. Oh, probably, but we don't want to actually say that. We don't want to put a value mm. statement out mm. there. Mm. I mean, the reality is um, every sport these days stands for, stands for something. Some stand for more than others. So cricket, for instance, um, has made a particular stand around um, sustainability. Mm. One of the reasons is because cricket has struggled with intense heat um, which is impacting um, uh, the quality of play. Oh, and poor the, old Davy Warner yesterday. Goodness me. Right. Yeah. That's right. So, and, and then you have uh, the question of uh, water security for cricket. Mm. So, there's a number of, of challenges that cricket has identified and felt that they should take a leadership position on in terms of being advocates for climate change globally. Uh, and here in Australia. Now, of course, this hardly means that, you know, cricket itself is going to, uh, in and of itself, bring about change, but it's just going to be one of the voices for change. Mm. Um, and that's why um, I think sports, they can't stand for everything, but they need to stand for something. Yeah, I found a quote too when I knew we were going to have this discussion, uh, and I suppose it's the way uh, that everyone thought about it or owners thought about it back in the day. There was a, a president of the Dallas Cowboys, Tex Schramm, reported to have said in 1987, players are like cattle and the owners are like the ranchers. So in other words, implying ownership of the players. Thankfully, we've come a long way from there. Well, we indeed we have. Um and, uh, I mean, strangely enough, uh, professional athletes are in a more powerful position uh, than amateur athletes these days or athletes that, that don't have a professional contract. And by that I mean that, uh, you know, the teams here in Australia, uh, the well-known ones like the NRL and the AFL, you've got, um, you know, really good uh, player associations. They um, negotiate collective bargaining agreements uh, workplace safety measures, um, and so on. Um, and so the, the, the athletes themselves have significant input into the conditions under around which they work. You compare that to athletes who are part of, um, I guess, sports that compete mainly at the Olympics and World Championships but don't have the commercial income of those sports. So uh, thinking, for example, uh, field hockey, uh, you know, gymnastics, athletics, and so on. They don't have uh, player representative um, uh, unions or associations. And so they don't have bargaining power the way that professional athletes do. And, um, and, and, and so they, they basically rely on uh, the goodwill of the uh, national sport organisations that they... Um, compete for, uh, but they don't have the bargaining power and they don't have the, the regular salaries that the professional athletes have by way of negotiating improvements to their, um, mm. their competing conditions. 
Yes, and look, uh, this subject is a pet one of mine. There's a lack of knowledge, I think, about what players do off the field. And again, you know, you get uh, the talkback callers, ah, these blokes, you know, they get paid $800,000 a year and that's all they do. They play sport. Back in my day, they're all at a job, you know, lifting kegs at the leagues club or whatever. But, you know, the club I've been involved with for a very long time, uh, the Roosters, they've got a community service award they give to a player every Mm. year. And that's for a player who does the most within his community or for the community. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And yes, they behave badly sometimes and they are role models and they should be aware of that. But I think Mm. uh, a lot of people don't know. They do a lot more than the perception might be. Uh, You're right. Um, What we hear too often is, uh, is bad news in the tabloids and it's very hard to get good news into the press. Uh, And so, um, uh, there's a, there's a mismatch not necessarily between what happens but what is reported. Um, I also want to make the point that Australian athletes, if if they compete here rather than say you know competing on the World Golf Tour, or tennis, or Formula One, uh, our athletes are paid pittance compared to what they're paid in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so you know if somebody's paid. Five six hundred thousand dollars here. They're probably really at at in the in the top kind of twenty percent of their sport. Yes. If they were in the top twenty percent of uh, say European football, they'd be earning tens of million dollars a year. Um, and so there isn't, I think, a case to say that uh, they are they're overpaid. In fact, one of the uh, one of the virtues really of the Australian system is we've come to uh, appreciate it is that um, uh, the salaries paid to our athletes need to be commensurate with what is affordable by way of revenue because we only have 26 million people we have four professional football codes we have more national sport competitions per capita than any other country it therefore requires us to make sure that we manage our finances uh, in such a way that allows us to be sustainable. And that's an increasing challenge uh, because we've got more teams, uh, we've got new leagues, and everybody wants to expand. And I, uh, I think that's, uh, that, that's kind of the, the big issue of, of the next decade is, is one of uh, sustainability. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It really is. A couple of things before you go, because uh, I'm going to give you what my viewpoint was of Sandpaper Gate uh, involving uh, Dave Warner and Steve Smith. And uh, I was just absolutely horrified because it went against all of the all the values that I hold dear about Australian sport. You know, it's like, you know, kicking your golf ball in a game of golf, all of those things that you just don't do. So that was my view at the time. Uh, but how long do you have to go to purgatory for that, and I think that really did polarise a lot of Australians about David Warner, a great player that he is, and Steve Smith too, to a certain extent. But Dave Warner, for some reason, seems to have copped the brunt of that. Yeah, well, the the, the view of uh, Cricket Australia based on its uh, investigation was that Warner, as the instigator, um, was uh, deserving of the greater punishment whether in fact it should have been a permanent ban from a leadership role or otherwise is certainly up for debate. 
Some people think that uh, they were unfairly charged because it went in excess of what the ICC recommendations are Mm. in terms of ball tampering. But that actually misunderstands what uh, the players themselves actually agreed to um, in a in their mo- most recent uh, collective bargaining agreement, mm. and that is a player code of conduct. And the player code of conduct sets out uh, different tiers of um, of conduct that um, is against the rules, conduct unbecoming, and so on. And it was. Uh, uh, fairly clear if you look at the code of conduct which is available online if your listeners want to read it that the the kind of integrity um problem that was identified in south africa was of such a serious um consequence that uh you know the the largest penalty was in fact um appropriate in this case yeah um Look, uh, David Warner, isn't he a great batsman? He's fantastic. No, he's isn't outstanding. He? <laughs> he is a great batsman. <laughs> he proved it with a 200 in his 100th test. Yeah. I mean, you and can't, so you can't shut your critics up much better no, than that, can you? No, no. But uh, we need to actually understand what he's actually good at. And, and I would say the same for Steve Smith as well. And he's a really good batsman, really good cricketers, mm. but they failed the test of leadership. Yeah, and uh, I I think that uh, a lot of people are now tuning back into uh, Australian cricket because we have new leadership mm. in the form of Pat Cummins, um, and I I think that Smith and Warner will continue to be wonderful servants of Australian cricket as um, as batsmen, and I know that Smith uh, will occasionally get a, a role as uh, acting captain when Cummins is injured. But I think that um, there's no going back now. No. We need to go forward. Absolutely. We, all the time. And one final thing. I wonder what you think uh, people find so offensive about the taking of the knee. These modern words are thrown around like PC and woke and virtue signalling and cancel culture and all of that. But a lot of Australians seem to be terribly offended uh, by our players or any players uh, taking of the knee. Why do you think people find that so offensive? Mm. Uh Looking at it from an Australian perspective, I think some people would say, look, that's an American thing. This yep. doesn't relate to us. But there's also, um, uh, I think, a, a hesitance in Australia uh, to actually come to grips with the fact that um, in our own history, uh, we have some major issues in terms of uh, race relations mm. and that, um, you know, Indigenous people uh, in Australia, just want a fair go, and uh, an example of that, of course, is the voice to Parliament. So, when you have athletes take a knee, which can be interpreted um, in term in terms of the American case, mm. but also more broadly to um, you know, people of colour all around the world that um, have historically been subjugated, yeah. then. What it means is that some people who are not uh, of colour are forced to confront uh, a reality that perhaps they're either unaware of or uncomfortable to acknowledge. Mm. 
Well, you know, I think we've proved it in politics and sport. Whether they mix or they don't, they're certainly there in tandem and have been for many, many, many decades. Uh, It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Daryl Adair. It really has. Associate Professor of Sport Management at the UTS University of Technology in Sydney. And thank you very much for sparing so much of your time with us. Uh, My pleasure, Tim. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. Dr. Daryl Adair. 